Welcome to Fireside Chats with Utah Council for Citizen Diplomacy. My name is Emma Russell and I am the Events and Outreach Director. These Fireside Chats are short conversations with Utah citizen diplomats who are reformulating the American worldview from one of despair to one of hope during a time of multiple crises. We hope that the embers of this conversation will light a fire in you and a spark of excitement for the future ahead. Today, I am so excited to introduce Gerald Elias, an internationally acclaimed musician, an award-winning author, community role model, climate change activist, music director, recent recipient of Utah's Citizen Diplomat Award, and truly so much more. We are so thankful to have you join us today for this conversation on music diplomacy. Thank you. Thanks for that uh, flattering introduction, uh, Emma. I appreciate it. Um, as Emma said, I am a musician trained in classical music. So that's what I'm going to be talking about today. There are all different kinds of wonderful music. Um, and there are people that are very conversant in that. But for me, it's, it's essentially classical music um, and how that has spread around the world and how meaningful it is to so many people. That being said, I've often been asked the question, what is it about classical music that is so appealing and so attractive? And in a nutshell, my answer is, I really don't know. It's, it's a mystery. It really truly is a mystery. And maybe that's one of the things that makes it so great to think about how these composers up to two, three, 400 years ago, just wrote these black dots on pieces of paper that express certain types of very complex vibrations and how those vibrations seem to affect just about everyone on earth the same way. It, it truly is magical. And I think that's one of the reasons why classical music has spread to virtually every corner of the world. I know there are people in the US who think the future of classical music is in jeopardy, but I remind them that in uh, East Asia alone, there are literally millions of young musicians who are performing Western classical music and millions more who, who listen to it. And the same can be said, of course, in Europe, where much of it comes from, and in South America as well, where I've had a, the opportunity to travel on, on many occasions and make music with musicians down there. So I uh, have been a violinist in the Boston Symphony. I was associate concertmaster in Utah Symphony for many years. And as Emma mentioned, I've been music director of the Vivaldi by Candlelight series for 15 years, which is sponsored by the Utah Council for Citizen Diplomacy. Uh, but before all of that, I was a student musician in the Long Island Youth Orchestra, where I grew up. The conductor of that orchestra, Martin Drywitz, was a seriously trained musician. He went to Juilliard, but by profession, he was a travel agent. And every summer for 40 years, he took that orchestra around the world on a different tour. So by the time I was a teenager, I had been to Europe, many countries in Europe. And a little while later, we toured to Polynesia, to Japan, to New Zealand and Australia. Um, and I saw how music could be a real 
common denominator among humanity and how we as musicians, whether young or old, could be cultural ambassadors. Uh, in fact, I have friends now who I met on those tours in the 1970s uh, from all over the world, and it really has served, uh, I, would, I think, to make the world a more peaceful place. I'm going to talk about different ways that music accomplishes this, how it really is a way that it brings people together. Number one, it brings musicians themselves together. If you look at any symphony orchestra in the US or pretty much around the world, you'll see that they're real melting pots. Uh, the Boston Symphony, for example, had many European musicians after World War II, came from Eastern Europe, Germany, France. And now there are a lot of Asian musicians in symphony orchestras from China, Korea, and Japan. So that when you play in a symphony orchestra, you really are part of an international community. And then the second part is when that orchestra goes on tour and interacts with audiences. And I use the word audiences in a very broad way because it's not only those people who go to the concerts, but it's the people who interact with the musicians um, in hotels or on the street or in restaurants. It's a way where people get to know each other and get to understand each other and respect each other, which is, I think, an important component of traveling in a symphony orchestra. And then, of course, there's the music itself. And I, I referred to that before about how the vibrations of listening to Beethoven Ninth, I think, are universally appreciated and beloved. So that when a symphony orchestra from the U.S., goes and plays in China, um, you know, there is that common bond, um, regardless of any other international tensions. I'm going to talk about four stories uh, to kind of uh, elaborate upon these points. Two of them are going to be what I call macro stories, how they really had big picture implications. And two of them are going to be very personal micro kind of stories between just a few people, but in a way even more meaningful. So the first story, the macro story, is when the Boston Symphony went to China in 1979. For those who were around then, <coughs> um, it had history-making implications. In the 1970s, the Chinese country, uh, Republic of China, underwent what was called the Great Cultural Revolution, in which society really was torn apart. When any educated person in the cities, uh, by the millions, were sent out into the countryside to become laborers in the field, when anything cultural, Western, and intellectual was just torn apart. At the end of that cultural revolution, when the Gang of Four was um, lost control of the country and was taken over by a ruler named Deng Xiaoping, 
uh, there was a sudden detente between the U.S. and China, um, helped by, by uh, Richard Nixon, who was president at the time. And the Boston Symphony was the first Western orchestra that went to China after the end of the Cultural Revolution. In fact, when our plane landed in Beijing, we were on the first 747 that ever landed in China. Uh, it was a real groundbreaking event. It was followed by the national and international media. Uh, Senator Ted Kennedy was at the airport in Boston to see us off. It was a huge event and his history making, I would say. One part of that week in China was giving a master class and interacting with the musicians at the Shanghai Conservatory of Music. For years, those musicians, the teachers there had been imprisoned or sent into the countryside. They hid their music and their instruments in closets, in basements and cellars, um, just hoping that one day they'd be able to open them up again. They were risking their lives because if those instruments and music had been discovered, they would have been put to, sent to prison um, indefinitely. So for us to interact with them was extremely meaningful, not only to them, but to us, because it really showed this common humanity and common bond in music. A second occasion on that trip to China was <clears throat> when the Boston Symphony performed jointly, <clears throat> excuse me, with the Peking Central Philharmonic. We played Beethoven Symphony Number no. 5 together at the People's Hall of Music. It was like an indoor stadium. There must have been 20,000 people there. And it was an event, again, which brought musicians together, brought humanity together under this incredible music by Beethoven that everyone knows is a symbol of victory and liberation. Um, my stand partner that day was a young lady who played uh, the violin in the back of the second violin section along with me. She later came to Boston to study and ended up as a violinist in the St. Louis Symphony. So it just shows how these connections, you never know what's going to happen. But uh, that was just one very positive uh, interaction there. Um, I remember when we did, gave that concert, uh, the conductor, Maestro Seiji Ozawa, who's Japanese, was, but who was born in China because his, his father was a doctor in Manchuria before World War II. He was so excited that he did this victory lap around this <laughs> indoor stadium. It was almost like he won the gold medal in the, the mile run at the Olympics. But um, it was quite uh, an important event, I think, in the history of both of our countries and in, in the history of music. Uh, a second macro event I want to talk about is when the Boston Symphony went to Japan just a couple of years ago, in 2017. Pardon me, when I talk too much, I get hoarse, so try not to talk too much. Uh, we played um, 
Symphony Number no. 11 by Shostakovich in Tokyo. Now that might not mean very much to many people, but the name of the symphony was, is called The Year 1905. And the music represents the first Russian Revolution of 1905, when thousands of innocent petitioners were slaughtered in front of the, winter, the Tsar's Winter Palace. And the music itself serves as a warning to humanity to question authority and to seek freedom. It's a very powerful symphony. The reason I mentioned this particular event is that when we performed it in Japan, two of the people in the audience were the crown prince of Japan, um, who's now the emperor, Emperor um, Akihito, and his wife, Princess Masako, who are music lovers. In fact, he plays viola. He's a serious amateur viola player. And he was sitting up in the balcony. And I watched them as we were performing because I was on the other side of the stage and he was kind of right behind the, the conductor. And it just made me wonder about what was going through his head because he's the equivalent of the Tsar of Russia. And I was just wondering what the impact of this music was upon him. Um, and to me, it just showed how this message of humanity and of freedom can be passed from one generation and one culture uh, to another and create a very meaningful bond. And by the way, I think he really enjoyed the performance. So that was a good sign. <laughs> so those are the two macro stories I want to talk about. Now I want to talk about two micro stories, two very personal ones. Uh, for 10 years, I was the first violinist in a string quartet here in Utah called the Abramian String Quartet, made up of uh, musicians in the Utah Symphony. And in the 10 years that we played together, we went to Japan six times to tour. One of those times, we went to the northern island of Hokkaido, which is where the city of Sapporo is. And we performed with a Japanese clarinetist there named Daisaburo Watanabe. Wonderful guy, wonderful clarinetist. And, you know, if, if you're classical music fans, you'll know that the greatest, one of the greatest pieces of chamber music ever written is the Mozart clarinet quintet, for string quartet and clarinet. So, of course, that was one of the things we performed. But he also asked us to play some Japanese folk music which we weren't very familiar with and not very conversant with. But we said, oh, okay, why not? I mean, this is cultural exchange. We might as well. So we gave a couple of performances in Sapporo. But he also booked us for a concert at this assisted living facility named with the peculiar name of Onion Court. Uh, it was named that because it was built in the middle of an onion field out in the countryside. So we went there, you know, we thought, okay, we'll go, we'll play a little bit, and then we'll go have a nice dinner somewhere. So we entered this um, facility, and most of the people there were extremely elderly um, with serious disabilities, 
most of them were beyond the point where they could even speak or walk. But they were put in, in seats in wheelchairs around where we performed. And we performed the first movement of the Mozart clarinet quintet, truly one of the most beautiful things ever written. And there was no response at all. But then we started playing these simple little Japanese folk tunes. And while we were playing, all of a sudden, we heard this rumbling. And we said, what the hell is this rumbling? What, what is this noise? And we looked up and these people that until that point were in some other world, they started moving their bodies and started singing. And, you know, it was like this moment, like, what, what more could one ask for as a musician? So that was um, quite, an pardon me, quite an experience. The second one took place in Cusco in Peru, where I had gone for quite a few years as a teacher, as a performer, as a conductor for various festivals, various concerts, master classes, things like that. And I had made some friends in Cusco. Uh, one of them is actually uh, an American named Amy Tai, who was living in, in Peru for a long time, and she was a Suzuki teacher. And she had gathered a bunch of local kids to start a Suzuki program there. And if you've been down there, you'll know that the resources among those students, especially in the mountain cities, is really, really limited. I think in the whole city of Cusco, there may be two pianos, both owned by a friend of mine who's just a wonderful pianist uh, and helped out with these, with these classes. Uh, so their instruments they had were very rudimentary. And the music they had was copied off whatever music they could find. Uh, nevertheless, it was a wonderful experience. It is always a wonderful experience working with young people, no matter where in the world. And I gave this master class. And at the end of it, you know, they all said, thank you. They're very appreciative. But the next day, Amy, their teacher, uh, brought me, this is 2006, brought me this little book that they had put together of photos of, the, of themselves and things that they wanted to express to me about the master class. So I'm just going to read one from this little girl here named uh, Lucero, who's now in her 20s and we're still Facebook friends. Uh, she wrote, music is pretty, beautiful, happy. When I play, I feel lighted up with peace. I see that my music fills the hearts of the people around me with happiness. And that is something magical that fills my being. So for me, that is what makes music the magic that it is and makes me kind of understand why it is such an important part of our culture. 
and why it's so important that we continue to play music and spread it around the world the best we can. So those are my stories and be happy to talk about those and anything else you'd like to talk about. Thank you so much. That was so, so great to hear. I'm really curious how this has adjusted with COVID, with these closures. How do you see this future of interacting internationally with music? When is the next time that you think you'll be able to work in these huge orchestras? Or how are you kind of, or how is the whole industry kind of evolving and adjusting to this? The industry is struggling right now. Most symphony orchestras are trying to figure out a roadmap forward to gradual reopenings. They do, they're doing all kinds of experiments with musicians on stage to see how virus spreads by playing the clarinet or the violin or, or the trombone and really kind of restructuring the whole way they're going to perform. And of course, the kind, the kind of music they're going to perform because for, for the foreseeable future, you're not going to hear Brahms or Tchaikovsky. You're only going to have 20 people on stage. Same with audiences. They're really testing airflow and ways of getting audiences in and out of concerts. So it's, there's, there's really going to be a rearrangement going on. I think symphony orchestras are going to survive. What, what really is of concern to me are the freelancers that often are substitute players with symphony orchestras or extras or have their own ensembles because right now they are kind of dead in the water and many of them are looking for totally new occupations. Um, but it remains to be seen. Uh, what gives me a little optimism is that in 1730, more or less, and also in the 1650s, there were epidemics of the plague that spread through Northern Europe, Central Europe, and Italy, devastating populations. And when you read about those plagues, you think, my God, how could humanity have even survived in those countries? Yet, those were periods that one might call the golden age of music in Europe, when we got geniuses like Bach and Vivaldi, um, and, and music just seemed to thrive through this. In fact, derived inspiration from some of the challenges. So I think in the future, we're going to see a return of, of great music. It may very well be in different formats than we've ever conceived of before. It might be more electronically based, like these Zoom meetings were, have suddenly gotten used to so quickly. Um, but I'm not, um, I'm not pessimistic that music will survive. The big question is exactly how it's going to. Yeah. Um, if, if I might make a comment and ask a question. Sure. Hi, Jerry. Hi, Elise. And hi, everybody. Nice to see you again. <laughs> yes, good to see you under such uh, unusual circumstances and to see some familiar faces. And thank you, uh, Utah Council for Citizen Diplomacy, for doing this. Uh, it's really a wonderful opportunity. Um, so um, 
Just a, a couple of comments. We, we just found out yesterday that the Metropolitan Opera is not going to be having a season until 2022. Uh, they, they have been having uh, some wonderful offerings that we've taken advantage of um, to hear some of their, uh, like Anna Netrepkov is, is coming up, to hear individual um, um, opera singers perform, uh, or two or three. And uh, they've been very kind in, uh, in also allowing um, operas that we, we know and love, you know, to, um, to be shown uh, free. You can, you can go to that. So, so there, and, and um, uh, there are different symphonies that are offering some of their past performances. So I, we can get um, um, at, at least um, a semblance of, of having, you know, real music in our lives. Um, a, a neighbor of mine just went to hear in, in, she said, we were starved for live music. And she said they, they were very responsible. Uh, I'm talking about the Utah Symphony. Um, and she explained how they did it. Uh, so I, I told her to let me know, you know, next time they do it. So there, there's music available for all of us. Uh, if, if you could just spend just a couple of minutes talking about the direction your life has taken you um, uh, outside of music uh, in, in the last few years. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Elise. Um, well, for the past 10 years, I'd say, I've been dividing my time pretty much equally between um, music and writing. A lot of my writing has to do with music. Uh, in fact, some of my writing even has to do with the subject today. And I just happen to have here a book I wrote called Symphonies and Scorpions. It's about life as a symphony orchestra musician on an international tour. Uh, it's my one nonfiction book, and it's kind of a memoir. So if you're interested in more stories about um, citizen diplomacy through music, uh, you might enjoy that. Um, but also I've written uh, a bunch of mysteries, a few more that will be coming out in the near future, um, a mystery series in which uh, the main character is an over-the-hill curmudgeonly blind violinist, and no, it's not autobiographical. Um, his name is Daniel Jacobus, and I'm happy to announce, for maybe for the first time, that there will be two more books in that series coming up in the next year or two. Uh, so it's been very busy. I, I would say my great joy in life musically these days is doing the Vivaldi by Candlelight series for UCCD. Typically, we have it in December, but because of the pandemic, we have opted to postpone it till next March when it'll be safer for people to come back into the concert hall. And I'm looking forward to that because uh, we plan on performing uh, everyone's favorite, the Vivaldi Four Seasons. So thanks for your question, Elise. How does a symphony orchestra transport its instruments? That would seem to be its own diplomatic challenge. Um, Really good question. Those are some of the nuts and bolts that you can read about in Symphonies and Scorpions. But basically, um, it really is a difficult assignment for our stage manager. He's probably the hardest working person in the whole organization. We have um, string instrument trunks in which 
every case fits into this little kind of padded cubby hole, which then has a lock, its own lock, combination lock, and then the whole thing shuts together and is on wheels and weighs about a ton. Um, and they put those onto the cargo uh, plane very, very gently because some of those instruments are million dollar instruments. Um, so that's part of the um, challenge to do that. Of course, the bigger, bigger instruments have bigger trunks. The string bases have, each of them have their own trunks and they're made out of epoxy fiberglass and you can, you, know, you can drop a bomb on them and they won't break. So that's, that's the good news. What's difficult these days is so many of the components of our instruments are made out of materials from endangered species, both animal and, um, and uh, plant, that there is this ton of paperwork that has to be made out before instruments can be shipped. And different countries have different provisions for them. So for example, when we went to Japan in 2014, the Japanese customs would not allow our violins into the country until like an hour before the performance. So it was crazy. Um, it turned out to be sort of a political kind of thing, which is a long story, but eventually it did get um, to, into our hands and we were able to play the concert. Uh, but things like that do happen and it, it really is, you know, one of those unseen things that goes on backstage that audiences generally don't know about, which are, but which are pretty fascinating. Chair, in this country, even in the best of times, it seems that symphony orchestras are in dire straits financially. Do you find this to be the case internationally as well? Um, that's a really good question. And first of all, in this country, some orchestras are in dire straits. Many orchestras are usually um, kind of juggling a hundred balls at once to stay afloat, but do a pretty good job of it. A few orchestras are financially secure. So there's a whole range there. Around the world, it's different story depending on what countries you go to. For example, in Germany, part of everyone's income taxes go to support the arts so that there's no danger of the Berlin Philharmonic ever folding. They get incredible support as do all the cultural institutions in Germany. Other orchestras are in different situations. Um, in England, for example, where the BBC used to support many, many orchestras, a lot of them have become more privately funded. And that was a, a difficult transition for orchestras in England where musicians kind of are probably the hardest working musicians in the world. Um, they're always exhausted and they're always going from one recording session to another. Uh, but I remember once when I was in Boston Symphony and our principal guest conductor was Sir Colin Davis, uh, one of the great conductors in the world who conducted orchestras all over the world. And I remember musicians in the Boston Symphony kind of bemoaning the fact that they weren't getting government support, no public support. It was all private fundraising, uh, corporations 
philanthropies, things like that. And, and Colin Davis's response was, count your blessings, because if you're funded by the government, one day that funding is going to stop and you're going to be left out in the cold and you won't know what to do. So he said, you should feel fortunate that you have to go through the struggles you do to always be able uh, to have the tools available to seek and get funding. And, and what actually did happen was, you know, a couple decades after Davis said that to us, um, the Thatcher government cut funding in England for its cultural institutions, uh, you know, almost decimated it. So, you know, it came true. And so on one hand, you know, you do hope the public um, and government are supportive of, of the arts. On the other hand, it's good to have the, the mechanisms available to, to be able to do it on your own. As uh, Symphonies and Scorpions, and can I have a title of one of the mystery violinist books? Um, the most recent one is called Spring Break. Spring break. I have a dear, dear German friend who's an ex-violinist locally, and she no longer can play. And her birthday's coming up. She's like 86, but she still can read. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I know she will be interested in both symphonies and scorpions, and you've solved a dilemma for me. But um, for those of you that haven't had uh, the privilege I've had of living in Germany for 10 years as a teacher with the military, um, I've always liked classical music. That was because my dad never played anything but LP records of classical and opera. But to go to those outdoor concerts in Europe, in, in a location in front of an old castle, and there's 100 or the proms in England during the springtime. My daughter worked in England. And to go hear those, castle, those concerts outdoors and those venues, which are shown sometimes on PBS, um, they're lovely there, but... In uh, sometime in the future, I would range a whole travel trip. I would like to just do to go to concerts from Austria to Italy and these wonderful coliseums and churches and whatever. <laughs> just mm -hmm. just a comment. Yeah, I, I I hear you. I think some of my favorite concerts in Europe were in Prague um, by the, the the castle there, or in Salzburg. You know, places like that. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. You know, here's a plug for Vivaldi by Candlelight, uh, because we perform at the First Presbyterian Church uh, in Salt Lake City. And that is a wonderful place to play, not only because of its acoustics, but because that's the kind of setting where so much of that music was performed. So for me, that that's a real thrill. And uh, when we have well, that... I've gotten many, many of my friends every year to go to that concert. I love it. Just absolutely but love it. Great. I just want to conclude by thanking Jerry so much for his time and joining us today to talk about music diplomacy. Throughout the conversation, he mentioned a couple of different book titles, so Symphonies and Scorpions and Spring Break, but he also has a new book that was just released in September, um, The Beethoven Sequence, and it's about a mentally unstable musician obsessed with the theme of liberation in Beethoven's symphonic works. But when he becomes president of the United States, he begins eliminating his opponents one by one. I also just want to remind everyone that this is only the first of four fireside chats happening in fall 2020. 
Our next edition will feature Liz Lamson, a member of the Utah Black Artists Collective, who will be speaking to us about minority representation and how to create change through art. Thanks again, Jerry, and I hope you all have a great week. These fireside chats are brought to you by Utah Council for Citizen Diplomacy. Special thanks to Gerald Elias, our guest speaker, Westminster College as our continuous partner, Felicia Maxfield Barrett, our executive director, and I'm Emma Russell. I'll see you on the next edition of Fireside Chats.